welcome to the Naked Dialogue podcast. This is season two. Um, I'm here with Abraham and Itamar. Hey, what do you mean by covert realism? Well, right now, the covert realism argument uh, is in relation to what is phenomenology and what position are we going to take in regards to reality. Are we going to assume that reality is real? Are we going to assume that reality is and not necessarily real, etc.? You have to explain it to Neil. To Neil, that's right. He's, he's the one asking the question on Twitter. So, Neil, uh, what I mean by a covert realist is someone who is continuously denying the existence of an imminent reality, meaning a directly tangible and apprehendable reality and at the same time making the potential fallacy of saying that if being is then being must be in direct or indirect contact with something outside of them so that is what covert realism is which does not necessarily say that you are a realist but that you are playing with with realism as an axiom and what realism is philosophically is simply to say that if there is consciousness or being or something that exists, it's going to be this thing that we call reality, which is not necessarily true. What phenomenology treats in its practice is whether whatever is outside or whatever reality might entail is in fact composed out of conditions for existence rather than existence itself. And so that is the distinction to make outside realism, whether you're discussing existence as existence in itself, or whether you're discussing existence as different composites of knowledge information systems. That's, that's how I would explain it. Don't use this as the introduction. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, the tying point here is Okay, so if we assume that there is some degree of sense to be made out of things that exist, are we going to assume that reality exists? Or are we going to assume that it doesn't exist and that we're just interpreting based on whatever exits reality and that exits exists? No pun intended between exiting and existing, although it makes sense because whatever exists has to exit you. This is what Heidegger would call ecstasis, ecstasis. In order for you to exist, something has to exist outside of you, which is similar to the Husserlian slogan of intentionality and phenomenology as a whole, which is that anything that consciousness is must be in, or anything that you are conscious of in, in the sense of consciousness existing means that it must be conscious of something. So if you are if consciousness exists, then consciousness is always of something, a consciousness of something. So this is more or less what resolves in the question of existence, which is that for something to exist, it must exist outside of you. So we don't assume reality, or we do assume reality, but we don't assume that reality exists. We simply assume that existence exists, which is not the same thing as saying that reality exists. And so reality gets dissolved within itself into sets of 
articulated points of cognition, knowledge, apprehension, understandings, and this is what constructs the world and our interpretation of the world. So what phenomenology is saying, essentially, and this is why phenomenology is a type of covert realism, is that it doesn't matter whether the world is real or not. It's clear that it's composed out of something or that there are compositions flying around. And so our task as phenomenologists is, is to observe what are the essences of, uh, of these things that we call real, but that are simply within reality and that supposedly exist and encounter their, how they relate between each other. To what extent can we make a cohesive point on reality? That is, that is the, the, the question. What do you think about the hard problem of consciousness? That it's not hard or a problem, it's an oxymoron. Because it's just assuming that consciousness is a human mind, which is not the same thing as saying that consciousness is mind. And notice that I'm not using the descriptor, the, here. It's the conversation we talked about. Where can we bring Sanjana into the conversation we talked about? In you explaining your systems theory, Systems of what? Oh, of the dimensions? No, not of the intersecting planes. What you left aside to tell me later, and that you never told me. I did end up telling you, no? What, what systems? Whatever you texted me. Oh, the one about the brain. Yeah. It was about the brain. I can't focus. I'm ordering food. ADHD. It's, no, it's just... Maybe it's the opposite of ADHD. Isn't it? Technically tomorrow at 8 p.m. said I will share with you today my new model linking the brain sensory input action chemical balances though and overthinking slash dreaming thought and overthinking slash dreaming so yeah the the, the y tubes what's up with panpsychism panpsychism yes so what that means is that everywhere or all mind in Greek obviously pan all uh, spread out and, and the psyche mind personally what do I think that if anyone is stupid enough to believe that a human mind and the way that we think of thought commonly as in an image or some degree of linguistic understanding within matter then then it's just a, a failed analysis. From my point of view, the only way to think about panpsychism is within process philosophy, one that you would find in Alfred North Whitehead and even Hegel to some extent. The idea of panpsychism outside of whether there is some union between the human mind and the mind outside is indistinct from that, that there is mind outside, and that is it is this over-encompassing thing, which does not exactly intersect with human mind, but that it creates reality or the world. So, a, I think a mature version of panpsychism would be to, it, it would be the Charles Sanders Pearson one, in which. Matter is simply mind that has affected. And 
we have to think about it in those terms. And, and I think it's the most simple, simplistic way in the sense that matter exists. We have to understand that it exists rather than it being supercharged uh, with mind, which it is to some extent. But, it's, but matter still has the appearance of matter. That is something indisputable. So I think that any form of panpsychism tends to fall into an absolute idealism, which I don't entirely agree with because materiality is in this superposition of being and non-being and has to be accounted for philosophically. And so I, I sort of agree with the panpsychist approach that mind is everywhere, but I, I would phrase it different, differently and say that mind is ever, you know, my mind is forever. If we, if we put it that way, it's, it's time is more pertinent here than space in regards to, to mind. I mean, do you think it's the most plausible argument for consciousness? It's, it's a fair one, yeah, but not a human consciousness. I mean, this is the, the flaw. No, but like consciousness thinking. fundamentally, like... Yeah, but the reason that we say that consciousness is outside and we don't call it another name is because we have understood humans to have consciousness. So, like... It's the interpersonal... Yeah, I still don't yeah. agree with that perspective either. That's a Jungian collective archetype one. Uh, I'm not there philosophically right now. What I'm trying to say... Consciousness as a fundamental thing is only thought of as consciousness be because we have a human mind. So let's not call it consciousness. Let's call it being. So the fundamental assumption here is that there is some sort of connection between being as a whole and a being within a human, a human being, as the human is, or the being within the human, the isness within the human. So I think that this quote-unquote problem of consciousness or mind-body problem which is the exact same problem of subject and object is that these things are inevitably unified if we're taking a phenomenological standpoint which tends to be the most common sense and practical one so it's highly pragmatic uh, and on the other side uh, we can also reach this assumption which nears absolute idealism but that can, you know, to some extent be saved by some sort of, once again, phenomenology, uh, is that being is everywhere. I am this everywhereness of being, and there is no distinction between my mind and my body or the, or thoughts or the world, fundamentally. You are having a monologue. The world is an idea. Please expand. <laughs> Say more. Say more, continue. Develop your thinking. Well, the world is both an experience and an image. And if we conclude that the world could be an image because my perception is limited to whatever walls I have in front of me that my vision does not go through, then I can also say that the world exists, but this is not true, this would be highly empirical. Uh, we have to say that, okay, the world might exist, and it, it, it sort of is a reality, it is reality, but it's not necessarily real. So that would be why the world is an idea. I mean, it's plausible. 
most indubitably. The world is nothing else but an idea at a truth level. Sanja and I want you to share something. But what should I share? I don't know. What's been going through your mind in recent days? Yeah, dude. No, I watched this movie, Spellbound. It's a 1945, you know, film by Alfred Hitchcock. And it's about, you know, psychodynamic therapy to dream interpretation. Nucleus are the problem being amnesia. But apparently the aesthetics are worth looking oh, at, Oh, right? 100%. The movie is worth it. Yeah. That was a bad throw, I'm sorry. What, what are the recent movies you've ever watched? Ooh. I've seen Red Wine. What's that? Because <laughs> you're like thinking the smell? I don't know. No, absolutely. It, it elicits. Memory is synesthetic, but it's not a synesthesia. Good, well worded. Yes. Let's yeah. talk about hallucinatory visuals. Okay. So at first, it's like you get like this very anxious you know like rush or whatever and so like you feel your body just heighten and so after some time you know like the visuals start to kick in so everything's becoming more crisper and like you can really more crisp like asterisk before crisp i disagree with everyone more, more crisper, crisper has its own connotation and meaning more crispier no, if anything. no, dispute you, I would say, no, not more crispier, crispier, but I'm defending your point. Mm -hmm. More crispier mm -hmm. has a different meaning than more crispy and crispier. Different meaning. More crisper has a difference between that, I mean, uh, crispier and crisper. Yeah, uh, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm more harder and harder. There's a, there's a reason you say more harder. Yes. And it's not just linguistic. But you can just say much harder and then it, it, it it's the same thing and it's better. It's completely legitimate to say it's, it's completely legitimate to say more or better. Absolutely not. It means something different than better and more good. Much better is the is much better than saying more better. But more better is more better than saying much better. No. Okay. Hitting all defenses. Persona. Mm -hmm. Oh, the story space. Yeah, that would be interesting to analyze to what degree a persona is related to one's private language. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's why Lacan dispenses of union terms and simply says that it's the subject, you know, the subject to the unconscious. But union terms are so... Very intuitive. They're intuitive and they're also... Holistic. Yeah. Integrative. Yeah. You know what we should do? Play a word association game? No. Yes. No, fuck that, no. Because for the podcast, for the podcast, Citrus right? Citrus. Citrus. So we Lime. talk about hypnagogia, dude. You know, what is, you know, what is even hypnagogia? So it's basically a transcendental state from consciousness to your sleep or your dream state, which is part one to part four stages of dream. So within those dream states, it, you know, there's closed eye human hallucinations. There's like a lot of artists, you know, who to their creativity, showcased or projected artistically the hypnagogic state onto their art. And so some of these people were Dali, Thomas Edison, and like the Frankenstein author. So do you want to describe your hypnagogic hallucinations no. visually? No. <laughs> well, uh, okay, let's clarify it by saying that I think there is a 
classification of different types of pedagogia. Mm -hmm. And I think it starts with reverie. It starts with your mind's eye in a conscious, non-sleep state. I think that is the first degree of hypnagogia, in which you can just close your eyes and have a, some feeling be directly refracted onto a faint image in your mind's eye. That's where, that's where I say that hypnagogia starts. Uh, and then there are the more radical degrees of hypnagogia, which graze the lucid dreaming sensation in which you're almost you're literally having a hallucination but with your eyes closed because you're in this semi-sleeping state and that is what is commonly referred to as hypnagogia but I think there is this spectrum in which there are different types and thanks to the spectrum which might as well just be the functioning of the imagination and language in itself there's also auditory hallucinations. Because well, what kind of visuals do you see in your own personal experience? It varies tremendously. I do you try to categorize it in well, terms? I, I can, something that happens to me is that every time that I go into a hypnagogic mind, mind, mindset, I end up seeing the eyes of owls or some sort of big feline, like a leopard or something like that. That's always what I see. I see two eyes, a pair of eyes, usually from an animal, very faintly, and then I go into a completely another figure. I mean, I divide it in three stages. Stage one being geometric hallucinations, and then stage two being um, Tetris effects. And then stage three being some sort of image, just like projecting one after the other in infinite speed. Mm -hmm. And so, and then it becomes at some point a combination of, of all of these. Mm -hmm. So it's so trippy, but at the same time, it, it has its meaning of its own, mm -hmm. which is somewhat so symbolic that it's almost impossible. It's metaphorical ways. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that last point on that perhaps it's these three stages, which are three stages of memory, arguably, coming together in one. As, uh, and, and that oneness is, I think, the nature of the imagination. The memory and the imagination are one and the same, really. When you're imagining something, it's through the eyes of memory. And so the guy who started, you know, the whole research into hypnagogia is this guy called Andreas Mavrimatis. And he wrote like a master's PhD thesis about um, hypnagogia and like its essence as a phenomena in 1983. And so now, you know, this recent contemporary research is going on. And so there's one scientist called Surly Marcus Bonham, who's also, who's basically a physicist at University of Texas, within the Center of Theoretical Physics. So she published this book, which is probably the second most known uh, individual work on hypnagogia. 
It's called Self-Experiments with Consciousness and Hypnagogia. A scientist's personal exploration of consciousness at the threshold of sleep and beyond. And so she explores all the different sorts of hallucinatory experiences within hypnagogia through a, an empirical lens. So basically expanding on lucidity and then sleep phenomena. And so now there was another paper on academy by this academy called George Ellipsy, who perfectly was able to describe the geometrical imagery that I personally see in my experiences. And so he called those lattice patterns. A lattice is a line in a graph. Lattice is, is a lattice. It's like a matrix. It's yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. So it perfectly, it's perfectly aligned with what I see as in terms of geometric hallucination. But they're less interesting, the geometric hallucinations. I think. I think that's just pure perception. You know. But the interest lies in the patterns. Whether that's communicating something, I don't know. Probably. Or how it's just dynamic. Yeah, the fact that it's dynamic is, I think, less interesting. Because, uh, you know, you're not getting much out of it apart from how you may feel about something. That's why I'm calling it pure thought, or like pure perception. Mm -hmm. like you're only getting, and it's, it's similar to unformed auditory hallucinations that aren't words, which is technically possible. If you are listening to, for example, binaural beats on a psychedelic, you, you will have a species of hypnagogic hallucination when you close your eyes and when you're in a relaxed state in which these binaural beats will, will switch between themselves, will decrease and increase pitch, and depending on the pitch, it'll have a reflection on your thought. And so whatever you, you were thinking about in your emotional approach to it will be represented auditorily in, in, in auditory uh, illusions like really what hypnagogia is at the at the at the lesser stages is an illusion of the faint imagery that is already within you and so in this illusory process is a sense-making intentionality this is what's what's so fascinating about hypnagogia that it somehow manages to join images into words by by you know by animating these images. Uh, that's why I find the latter stages of hypnagogia way more interesting. The metaphoric aspect of literally being able to close your eyes, imagining an animal or something, and then animating the animal, and suddenly uh, a whole setting arising around this animal and, and you feeling as this animal in movement encountering objects that also have a metaphorical meaning. That's the type of hypnagogia that I'm talking about, which is not exactly a hallucination. It's more like feeling. Uh, I think you can reach the same degree of metaphorical hypnagogia, which is very lucid in smaller doses, dosages, doses. Dosages. You have a fixation with I know, e. plurals. Yeah, I know with the with with that plural it must have a name. Like octopuses, octopi. Octopi. It's octopi. It's octopi. E. No. Octopi. 
Yes. Yeah. Octop octopet. Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia. Octopedia. You're right. So to what extent is the psychedelic state hypnagogic? I think that hypnagogia is a little bit more accessible on psychedelics, but what is not accessible elsewhere than in psychedelics are hip are direct hallucinations. So, how's it going? It's chilly. Do you want to describe where we are right now? Visually, aesthetically? Oh wow, how the hell do you describe this place? There's okay. a black cat walking behind our black painted bench with emojis and red lips and red hearts. It's a nice bench. I saw the woman painting it a couple of weeks ago. Mm. It's fresh. We're at a paved intersection for pedestrians and some cars walking by. Mm. If the buildings weren't this broken, this could be like a chill European street. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Like the whole vibe of this place is just perfect. If you just want to sit here, it's like there's transport here, but minimal transport, you know? Like not crazy, like main roads or anything. Yeah, who uses this? Because it's like not even a road. When you see the road, it's not even a road. It's like a pathway, you know? Like this is what you use for walking. These yeah. are like the classical European, you know? Shopping streets. Exactly. So there's a lockdown, but I can count maybe, what, 40 people? A hundred percent. Lockdowns are just a joke at this point. People have either estimated the virus correctly or underestimated, and still somehow won, you know? The virus doesn't exist, it's a conspiracy. And here we go. <laughs> and, and hello, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Are you gonna take the vaccine? No. Oh, damn. Because, to me, it implies not having faith in my own immune system, in which I have a lot of faith. No, it's not really about your, only your immune system. It's like you act as a catalyst towards giving infection to other people. Everyone in my family is getting vaccinated. I'm the only one. I mean, I go up to someone, are you vaccinated? No. Well, that's, that's not my problem, you know? Yeah, true, true. It's a question of uh, free will, you know? I don't know, you keep saying that, that it's a question of free will. Mm -hmm. But it's also an issue of trust in the authorities because of how they handled it so horribly. True. And also, I think people in Tel Aviv especially very quickly internalize that everyone is responsible for themselves at the end. can't expect a government or anyone who's not you to take care of you. I like how that's open. <laughs> it's open. Everything's open. <laughs> yeah. Is that a clothing store? It's an outlet. Yeah. Or I just get a carpet. Do you want to get a towel? I want to get a per I want to get a good Persian carpet someday. Yes, I need a carpet for my room. I have one. How trippy is that graffiti? Imagine standing in front of it, not realizing it's there, and then looking up and then just like right in front of it. <laughs> Meet you at Carmel. We're not at Carmel. Is he out of it? Let's see. Our friend, uh, the Spanish friend of ours, is stuck in his own brain. 
Yeah, deeply. Deeply, you know? He's been on this podcast a lot. Yeah. I feel like podcasts make you listen to the other person. Oh, 100%. You know, that's why I like the whole idea of having long-form conversations. Because, like, when you see a person for seven minutes talking, it's usually censored, you know, to a higher degree. But as you keep talking, you know, past one hour or so, usually you know you you get to see a side of them that you wouldn't see in those censored minutes mm-hmm. it's like they open up more you can try to understand the person through their articulated ideas more like it's just perfect that way and so you get the full picture of you know the person like first hand you know so is your podcast oriented towards discovering people discovering people and discovering people's ideas but through them through their own fabricated, you know, method of telling me whatever they wanted to. I mean, humans wouldn't even kind of exist if it wasn't for communication. Communication is interesting. Yeah. We've been communicating. I mean, Plato has written dialogues. Mm-hmm. It's so strange how I read a few Plato dialogues and they just talk for minutes on end one person talking and the other person listens to every single word Mm -hmm. and is able to replicate the entire speech later on out of memory the most hardest greek philosophy book is uh the metaphysics by aristotle and metaphysics is all about you know aristotle's conceptions about forms ideas but really condensed Mm. so he tries to define what's metaphysics in a very objective manner he empirically you know tries to derive meaning out of all of the tech like all of the things he sees around him and then concludes and this is the 5th century BC how crazy is that yeah nothing's changed huh yeah we don't have answers to the questions the big questions why do I exist why not like the meaning of life mm-hmm. that's a different question why is there anything at all there's a universe, it's physical. Mm. I observe it through my senses, and I'm on this earth, and I'm subjected to gravity, and outside of this earth, there's bodies moving through space. And space is finite. It mm. ends at some point, there's an outer layer. Mm. <coughs> Whatever the hell's beyond that, it's not, it can't even be space. It can't even be vacuum. What the hell is it? Why are we here to experience? Why is there anything at all? And you know how bizarre it is that when you're a kid, more or less you don't even think about these things but like somewhere around you know getting into high school middle school you know you just suddenly realize like what is going on like why am i here like what is this it's almost like when a person gains a certain level of consciousness then only they realize that they are within that consciousness what is the meaning you ascribe to the the literal year what do you mean 2020, 2021, what is different for you? I feel like through different periods of time, like probably in like next three months, hopefully, you know, things are going to open up again. So it's not going to be like 2020, like the entire, most of the year, you know. We were all just in our homes, most of us, you know. And so this year is going to be getting back to normal. Hopefully, (laughs) if the vaccines are circulated, everyone takes it. 
there's no new pandemics or you know strains of coronavirus. I love listening to the city. Yeah. Dude, how crazy is it that people post pictures, right? And so sometimes when you're taking a picture of an architecture, you click it and there's a lot of people in it, but you don't know them. And what if someday just a random person finds their own face in someone else's picture? It's never we're happened. All, we're all online, you know? I'm pretty sure. you go about finding yourself online no sometimes it ha- it can happen by accident you know the you're just like on your explore page or whatever boom like Never what <laughs> but that's the thing that's the thing about possibilities and probability you know any like the chances are probably always one upon whatever infinity and it could still happen testing for now for noise for sound fuck start over <laughs> Let me restart that sentence. Because of your ego, then during a podcast you want to come off as many things, such as intelligent and as a good listener. True. And so you listen to other people during a podcast. Oh, I do that all the time. But then in... Good listener. If, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, of course it's in parentheses. In uh, quotation marks. And then if, you, if you're not on a podcast, you just fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. Like... Okay, so I can't for me, it's that. one of my main values not to interrupt. I realize that I just interrupted it, but but on podcasting, you can do that. Like you yeah. just need people to have their thing out, and then you speak. It depends. Like if you make an interruption, make sure that you're cognizant that you're interrupting. That's all I demand. These trees are cool. I found the best tree the other day. Beautiful mm-hmm. tree. What was it like? I don't know, but it took me out of my headspace. And I was just looking at the tree. I'm so glad this tree was in my way. I looked up and I said, this is a nice tree. So that defines a nice tree. This is highly liquid. What is this thing? The thing is, this is that. Everyone who says that needs to get slapped. In I, you can say, uh, the thing is, is it's that. And then you're fine. Like, it's, it's literally, you just change, yes, you change one consonant. The thing is, is it's that but you're still saying is is, is twice is. it's no, not no, but that's correct fine. no the thing is is that is it's no. that is, no it's that's that. still that's wrong. correct no yeah. is redundant use of the word that. is no it, it is but it, it's it's fine like it's not it's fine it's because grammatically erroneous so it is grammatically erroneous no because you could say the thing is 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 that no nope. that's grammatically erroneous god damn but it. saying the thing is is it's that is it's yeah but that is because the thing is yeah no i can't i can't do it the thing is we shouldn't even say the thing is is it's that no it doesn't make sense the thing is is it it's that (laughs) rhetorically it's it's acceptable to say is it's that but the thing is it's that we shouldn't even say the thing is that's that's, yes that's the root of error absolutely Because it's it's too ambiguous and it's just you know you're using it as a waste of words. Waste of words. Yeah. You're using it as stage time because you're an yeah. egotist. No, not even that. You're you're using it 
to ameliorate your thinking rather than using better words. It's like Israelis that say eh, eh, instead yeah. of just silence thinking of what they want to say. The reason you it's say um is because you don't want to lose your right yeah, to yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. People are listening to you and you will use it to speak even if you're just making noises to make it apparent that you're still speaking. The mm -hmm. art is to be able to, see I could have said like um, but the art is to be able to articulate fluently from beginning to end without uh, uh, something you improve it. Yeah. Sanjana, can you give us a review on male humor? The what? Can you give us a review on male humor and review. why? we resort continuously to making very infantile jokes. You guys are... I can't say that word anymore. Um, mm. What? You can say any word. No, I can't words. say that word anymore. What is this self-censorship? I have to do it. I have to do it. Do you like, feel it's, depressed? That you depressed yourself into not saying the word? Yes. I feel right. like I have to... Deny a part of me that wants to be free. I'm caging myself constantly. We're animals. It's not just rape and murder. It's a lot of things. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of things. It's be able to scream right now in this park, whatever I want.